Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Good morning, GCC, and those of you guys tuning in this morning. I'll say Merry Christmas, though. I know that's sometimes awkward to say uh, because it's not yet Christmas, but this is intended to be our Christmas service. And so Merry Christmas to everyone tuning in this morning. We're honored to have you tune in and join our live stream. Uh, My name is Rick, and I'm the lead pastor for Gospel Community Church. And this morning I get the privilege and honor to get to preach our Christmas sermon. And we're going to do that from the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. So uh, Luke chapter 2 is uh, where we're going to be if you can start turning there. Um, I'm also going to light the Christ candle. And so uh, typically we would light this candle at our Christmas service, our Christmas Eve service, but we're going to be doing that uh, via Zoom. There's been an email that's went out about that. We're sending it out on social media. But if this is the first time you're hearing about it, we invite you to join us for our Christmas Eve service. It's going to be from 6 to 630, just short. Um, We would love for families, for kids, for everyone to join in during that time. What we're going to do is have our director of family ministries, Jason Patterson, read Uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, and specifically the the Nativity account. And then we're going to have a few different families uh, sing uh, throughout uh, the night. So we're going to get to peer into a few different homes, see a few different faces, but it's going to be a time for those of you guys that haven't got to see people's faces, which is is most of us uh, for a while, to actually get to see some faces. And then we're going to hear from a few people in our church and kind of where uh, where they're at and how they're doing. So we we highly encourage you to to jump on Christmas Eve and uh, join us for our Christmas Eve uh, reading and for service. With that, I'm going to light the Christ candle. And so far, we've lit in our candles of hope, joy, peace, and love. Not in that order, but uh, we, t- today we recognize that actually Christmas is all about Christ. And so we light the Christ candle. We, we, we understand that hope, joy, peace, and love are, are all characteristics of Christ. He's ultimately the one that brings those things into our life. He's the God of love. And so we celebrate him this morning. And that's actually what Christmas is all about. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Part of being Christ-centered is seeing how Christ is at the center of all of life. And actually the entire universe has existed to bring worship and glory and honor to him. So that's what we want to do through the preaching and teaching this morning. But every Sunday we want to exalt Christ, which is why our mission statement is to make Jesus the hero. We recognize he is that. And so our hope and goal and aim is to, through preaching and teaching, to lift him up, exalt him and worship him since he alone is worthy uh, of all of our worship. So with that, I light the Christ candle. Please join me in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this morning. We, we thank you for the Christmas season. We thank you that, uh, that our God did not remain distant, that you love your creation, that you stepped into your creation to rescue, redeem, and save your chosen God. Thank you for the Christmas season. Thank you for the reminder. I pray it's not just this time of year that we celebrate what Christ has done. I pray it's every day of our lives more and more that the beauty and the glory and and, and just the majesty of the gospel would sink in, would would grab hold of us, would transform us, and and would change the way that we live. It would change the way that we interact with our families, with our spouses, that it would change the way that we interact in our workplaces as we go out, that identity given to us by your grace as a free gift of who we now are in Christ would transform every area of our lives. We pray that you would take just center stage of every part of our lives, Jesus. 
We pray that you would uh, um, re remove the idols from our hearts and lives that we worship ahead of you. We pray you'd forgive us as we confess our sins to you this morning, but we pray this morning that you would be exalted, you'd be lifted up, and you would be the hero that you are, Jesus, and that our hearts would be stirred, and that there would be such peace knowing that you're the God of peace who's brought peace to us through an infant in a manger who's ultimately God. So, Father, we pray this morning that through your spirit, you would teach us, correct us, convict us, and minister to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you've spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Instead of uh, reading the entire passage up front, we're going to just work through it uh, in just a moment. But let me give you guys a little bit of a recap to where we've been uh, for the past three weeks and, and where we're at today. Is we've been uh, teaching through a four-week series titled uh, Uncommon Gifts of Grace. And the reason it's titled Uncommon Gifts of Grace is because over the past few weeks, we've looked at very uncommon things that God has done, very un uncommon ways that God has interacted, uh, so much so that uh, when you initially look at some of these gifts, like uh, we looked at the story of Jacob, we looked at the story of the Israelites coming into the promised land and having to get circumcised. We look at these things and go, is, 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 this, is this a gift? But you see, underneath all this is God providing exactly what we need, something that makes us more reliant and dependent upon him. <clears throat> Last week, we uh, also heard from Ronnie uh, as we looked at uh, the gift of <clears throat> being, I forgot how he worded it exactly, but, but, but just kind of a good slap upside the head. In, in other words, God's discipline. And so these things are very uncommon. But the reality is, is that God makes a habit of working in uncommon ways. And so it, it's, if this is the, what the culture says, this is the standard. It's not like God goes, oh, I must follow that. In fact, if we look from Genesis to Revelation, we see that God works in very uncommon ways by uncommon means through uncommon people. And so even in the book of Genesis, we see that that there's this uh, cultural standard called the law of primogeniture, which basically states that that all the rights, privileges, and innocence, blessing go to the older child. But God doesn't operate like that. God is a God of grace. And from the outset of creation, God created out of grace, and then God gives grace. And so, in fact, we see that Jacob, the younger, was given the rights, and we see that Joseph was. And so we, we, we see that there's this God... Uh, who works in uncommon ways with uncommon people in, in, in uncommon places. And so God makes a habit of this. He, he loves to do this. And ultimately, he's shifting things and showing that he is he's not like us. And he, and he operates from this place of grace. <clears throat> the main point this morning is this, is that um, we have this uncommon gift of our baby. I'm using that language on purpose. I know that sounds weird and it sounds awkward. But the main point this morning is the gift of our baby. <clears throat> We're going to get to uh, here in just a little bit and see exactly what I mean by that and and exactly how the text unpacks that for us. Um, but I want to say this before we jump in. <clears throat> if you're new, if you're not a Christian, if you're investigating Christianity, wherever you're at, let, let me say this, that the most remarkable thing and beautiful thing in a sense about this Christmas season and for Christianity is that Christianity doesn't function and work like other religions of the world. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But it doesn't work through, uh, if you give it your best and, and, and climb the ladder, then you make it to God. And in a sense, you climb the mountain and you get into God's presence. Instead, what we have with Christianity from the outset is actually God stepping into his creation. And the reality is, is no one's ever seen the face of Allah. But... 
with Christianity, what we have is we have God taking on human flesh, a, a God that loves his creation so much that he's not willing to stay at a distance from it and from the sin and the brokenness that exists. But God loves his creation so much that he stepped into it in every way. <clears throat> We don't adopt a Ricky Bobby theology in a sense that Jesus was just this baby and he remained this baby. What we do recognize first off is that Jesus came as an infant. And the reality is from womb to tomb, Jesus didn't avoid pain. He didn't avoid brokenness. He didn't avoid the outcast. He stepped in in every way. And by that, we know, as scripture says, that he is the sympathetic high priest. In other words, our God can relate to us. He knows the pain. He knows the frustration. He knows all that goes on in this world because A, he's the creator of it, and B, he stepped into it. And so he knows what it's like to uh, go from womb, to go from infancy, to go to boyhood, which we're going to look at next week from Dr. Todd Miles. And then he knows what it is to grow up and go to the cross. Our God knows pain. Our God knows suffering because he stepped into it. I think it's a beautiful thing about Christmas is, is that we get to see that our God stepped in and, and, and it's what we celebrate. So uh, we don't have a God who avoids hard stuff. So with that, let's dive into the word this morning. Luke chapter 2, we're going to be uh, reading verses 1 through 20, um, but we'll slowly work through it. So, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Let me say this first about the author Luke. Um, who, who's, who's writing here, is that Luke is a historian. Luke is a brilliant writer. Um, but Luke's gospel is known throughout church history. Uh, oftentimes like an animal or uh, some figure is tied to the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke's is the ox. And the reason why is because Luke writes in such a way to show that Christ came to, to bear the burden. Christ came as an outcast for the outcast to bear the burden for us. And so here's my challenge. If you've never read the gospel of Luke, I encourage you to read it. So Christian or non-Christian, I, I would encourage you to read the gospel of Luke. And part of that is that you get to see um, through uh, Luke's portrait, uh, how he's portraying Jesus is, is he's an outcast from the outset. But, but he's the one that is moving towards people that don't fit in. So it's just a beautiful picture. And so that's, that's our writer. That's Luke and how he presents to us. Uh, Luke is a credible historian and, and he's, he's a credible source. And, and my family, I joke around a lot. And uh, my girls know to take about 2% of what I say serious. And so does my wife. I've, ever since I've been little, I've just made I've made it a habit to lie. I remember even going through like the McDonald's drive through and I would ask my mom to order stuff off the menu that didn't exist. And my mom would be like arguing with the person on the other side of the intercom and saying, my son is here with me. And he's saying, this is on your menu. And even as we grew up and police officers came to our house to investigate, my, my mom would be like, Hey, this is what my mom, uh, this is what my son has said. And my son doesn't lie to later realize that my mom's like, I don't know why I believe anything you said. And so whether joking or being dishonest from early on in life, 
uh, and then entering into marriage and, and family, still loving to joke around a lot, we, we've developed a system in order to know when dad's being serious. And it's, I give you my word. So my wife knows anytime I say, I give you my word that I'm telling the truth. And so what Luke is doing is he's not writing a fictional account saying once upon a time, what he's showing and, and how he's giving us proof that we need to take his writing seriously is, is he, is he puts names in here. So he, he put Caesar, which Caesar is just a title for the emperor of Rome. So he put Caesar Augustus in here. He puts the um, um, Quirinius in here. So he puts names in here and he puts places in here to show these are real people at a real place in time. These are real events. This is real history, grounded in real history. That's Luke's way of saying, take this serious. This isn't just a fictional account. This isn't just something made up. This is true. This is real. And Luke put a lot of work into gathering uh, uh, the historical events to present them. Uh, what we also see here is that in this account and in these first few verses is Luke's doing something amazing is he's starting to show who, uh, uh, who Caesar Augustus was. He, he, he was starting to show who the government, who the rulers were, and in a sense where they were seated in their place of power. But what he's also doing here is he's showing them first and then later he's going to jump down and show us ultimately who is the person in power, who ultimately is God. And though these people are seated on earthly thrones, this is the king who came in a manger, but who ultimately stepped away from his heavenly throne. He's, he's showing this in, in comparison. And so just to give you a, a little framework of who Caesar Augustus was, is Caesar Augustus, his real name is Octavian. So whether... Whether he nicknamed himself, which is a thought, and if you read some of the stuff that uh, Caesar Augustus said, it wouldn't be too far off to think that he would do something like that. But actually, Augustus means majestic or holy one. So anytime you nickname yourself or give yourself a name like majestic or holy one, you start to see what someone is believing about themselves. He believed that he was a, um, a, a, um, a child of Zeus. And so in a sense, he believed he was deity. You, you, you have this guy making decrees. Decree is meant to be seen as something that is weighty. It is something that is oppressive. It, it is something that you don't want to do. So he's, he's letting everyone know the decree is going out from me throughout all the Roman Empire, throughout all the world, that you need to go and be registered. This was a fairly normal thing to do. Um, but it's burdensome for Joseph and Mary. They were going to have to go to uh, to his birthplace of Bethlehem, uh, which, which would have been roughly a 70 mile trek with about a thousand foot elevation climb. And here's the reality. We, we, we know this from the Christmas story that that Mary was getting ready to give birth. Doing this this pregnant uh, with this sort of haul, that's not an easy task. We understand what is happening here is that there's an emperor in place who's making orders and, and, and this emperor loves to exploit people. So we have a broken government. We, we have power hungry people. And that's in a sense of the beginning of Luke's gospel is there's this guy who's giving out orders, who, who's abusing his power. And the reality is, is that a broken government isn't something that's new in the 21st century. A, a broken government isn't uh, a, a brand new invention. There's, there's always been power hungry leaders and there's always been broken governments. But the reality is, is that there's someone who's in charge of even working through broken people and broken governments and broken systems and even broken orders that are being passed. And that's the beautiful thing. Though though uh, Caesar Augustus thinks that he's the one calling the shots and, and, and he's working everything, it's ultimately him operating and working under God's hand who is 
the great uh, and masterful artist who, who is unfolding his story and his account, even through broken, power-hungry leaders. And so though he's sending a decree out, this decree is taking Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem uh, to where the prophets of old that we see in Micah 5, 1 through 2 said, this is where the Messiah is going to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. So God is structuring it and working it all from his control to where Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. And he's doing it through broken leaders. This is why this should give comfort to us is in the midst of 2020 in, in the midst of so much going on in the midst of so much pushback to government and, and struggles here and struggles there. We need to know. And we need to remember that God is in control and he works everything. He works 2020. God is doing something, something beyond what we can see and fathom oftentimes, like he's doing here in, in, in this gospel account through the, uh, through the birth of Christ. He's doing something amazing. We can trust that he's at work. Even if it looks like it's a corrupt government or there's just brokenness, we can trust that God's hands are moving and working to where he will bring out his perfect plan for his glory and for his children's good. We also know from Jeremiah that God was going to raise up a branch from the line of David. And so God, again, he's working and moving in the midst of, of a power hungry people to bring out his ultimate plan. Let's look at verses four through eight. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. So again, we've been looking at uncommon gifts of grace. What is grace? Grace is something that is given to us by God is how we're looking at it, that we can't work for, we can't earn, and we can't contribute anything to. It's a free gift. It's one-way love. It is unearned, undeserved. And so what we see throughout this as we start to unpack it is that God works, as we said from the beginning, in, in uncommon ways, through uncommon means, with uncommon people from uncommon places. And speaking of a very uncommon place, Jesus uh, was, was from and, and lived in Nazareth. And so his dad is, is coming up from Nazareth. They're coming up from Galilee. And we know from the Gospel of John that Nathaniel goes, can anything good come from uh, Nazareth? And so we know from this and from Luke's account that he's purposely putting in there that they're traveling from Galilee, that they're traveling from Nazareth, that, that this is going to be the Messiah. This is where they're coming from. And eventually this is where he's going to go back and be raised, that this is meant to grab our attention and go, Nazareth? And in, a, and in the same way, I'll say this, uh, please don't get offended because I'm picking on the town that I live in. But in a lot of ways, uh, since I moved here, I've heard people refer to Springfield as uh, Syringe Field and Spring Tucky and, and other various names. But in a lot of ways, think about this. If, if you heard that, that someone was uh, raised up or brought up and someone was going to be like a great and awesome leader... And then you said, or someone said, where are they from? And they're like, from Springfield. They'd be like, from Springfield? And so this is, this is meant to kind of have a response like that. Like, what? The Messiah is coming from a place like Nazareth or Galilee? Uh, and that's where he's going to be raised? It's also, and Luke doesn't quite do it, but he's trying to take you a little bit into the ancestry of 
Joseph by showing that he's from the line of David. Again, this is an uncommon town, an uncommon place for a Messiah to be born from, but it's also a very uncommon lineage that we see in Matthew's account. And what I mean by that is in the lineage of David, we know that what we have in that lineage is we have adultery, we have murder, we have a prostitute, we have incest, we, we have someone even going further back than David sleeping with their maidservant. This is a very uncommon lineage. This is a very broken group of people that the Messiah has come through. And that's what, that's what Luke is trying to show. Look, Nazareth and Galilee, um, uncommon place, this lineage, uncommon people. And sometimes we feel like that. Like if we look at our family lineage, that, that, that we might in a sense feel kind of the same way, but Luke's trying to show God works through, uh, uncommon means with uncommon people from uncommon places. What we also see from this uh, verses four through eight is that uh, Mary was a virgin. And, and so uh, she's not yet married. Luke gives this, uh, he says this multiple times uh, as he does e even here, manger, manger, manger. He says that a lot as well. But it's important to note that, that it is an important Christian doctrine to note that Mary was a virgin and, and that it was a virgin birth. The reason why is because the Messiah, which means anointed one, the savior, the rescuer, the deliverer, couldn't be tainted by sin. And so it had to be a supernatural birth because all man is impacted by Adam's sin. We go back to the garden, to Genesis. And, and then thereafter, we've been impacted and affected and born with a sin nature. So someone had to be born who wasn't tainted by sin. Someone had to be born who could fully surrender uh, their life to God's will. And someone had to be born that was unstained to be a perfect sacrifice. And so we need a virgin birth. We need Jesus to not be uh, tainted and impacted by sin. Um, and, and we need him to be able to present that offering to a good, just, and holy God. And so we need this. What we're also seeing here is that there's no place for Jesus. Jesus is the king, the creator, the God man. He's fully God and fully man, but there's no place for him. There's no, uh, in, in sports, uh, in fighting and in different stuff. One of the big moments that, that people love is, is the walkout, like the walkout, walkout song. It, it, it's, it's kind of gets everyone pumped up when the King Jesus Christ shows up. It's in a sense silent. There's no walkout song. There's no just just big entrance or anything like that. It's silent, which is we sing this the song Silent Night. It, it is quite opposite of, of how we would expect a king to come in on a horse with royalty and, and, and just this big, massive entrance. And what we see in that is everything about it is very uncommon for a king. Everything about it is very uncommon for the birth of the God man, Jesus Christ. Let's keep moving on, verses 8 and 9. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Okay, so Luke's, Luke's, Luke's in a sense, building on this uncommon people, uncommon places and all of this. And how does he do that? He goes to shepherds. In some ways, anyone that has an understanding of shepherds would go, come on, Luke, seriously? When, when, when the birth of the king of God is, is showing up, he's going to show up to shepherds? Like this is going to discredit the story. Why? Shepherds were only one step up above lepers. So they, they were ceremonially unclean for the work that they did until so they couldn't worship. Uh, they, uh, their, their, testim uh, their testimonies couldn't be heard in court. They were known as kind of like rebels, rough around the edges, just edgy outcast. And this is who 
the angel of the Lord appears to. That says something. It says something big. It says something about uh, God's heart. It says something about God's mission. In a lot of ways, we can feel like outcasts. We can feel like broken people. We can feel like that. And we have to see God's heart in this. When God shows up in the person of Jesus, he shows up, the angel does, to declare it first that the Savior's come to a group of just ragtag, broken shepherds. And, and, and I don't mean this in, in, in a, uh, I don't just a negative way at all, but when I think about GCC and I think about the men at GCC, I kind of think of shepherds. I kind of think of like ragtag rough around the edges guys. And it encourages me, but it's not our identity. It's our identity is in Christ, but it's encouraging me to me that, that this is kind of the sense that I see is, is it's this, um, group kind of like the shepherds. It's a little bit rough around the edges, but that God delights to use and take the messes of the world, the uncommon people and use those stories for his glory. Um, again, through the showing up to shepherds, we get to see God's heart and who his heart's for. We get to see what Luke is doing. And again, what we see is that there's this uncommon outsider, Jesus Christ, who's, who's coming in an uncommon way, but he's coming to very uncommon people. Now we have to ask the question, why fear for the shepherds? Because we see that, that the angel of the Lord shows up and they're struck by fear. Well, obviously the, 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 the night, uh, uh, other than just the sound of some sheep, was going to be silent. It was going to be dark out. And now all of a sudden, the, there's this bright light and there's this angel around them that's speaking to them. And so we, we, we know and understand this, that anytime in scripture, we see someone come into the presence of God or around the presence of God, or from someone who's been in the presence of God, that there is fear. And that is the emotional response of one of like, whoa, what do I do? Here's what we never see. We never see anyone saying, I'm good, or I'm a really good person, or I'm a pretty good person. We understand that anytime that someone is in the presence of God, a holy and perfect and righteous, good God, or in the presence of someone who's just been in his presence, we, 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 we have this sense of fear because we recognize our sin. We recognize our shame, our guilt, our brokenness. And, and again, no one goes, well, I'm a pretty good person because in that moment we see our depravity. And here's the reality, just to be blunt, is our messes in life aren't because out there in the world there's some like weird brokenness. Our messes in life and, and when our marriages and, and, and our families and, and all of just life is in a mess, it's because we're sinful people. It's not because out there somewhere floating around in, in the universe is some bad thing. It's because we're broken. It's because sin has impacted our lives and we're a mess. And so when we bring that into the presence of a good God, we don't go, well, I'm better than him, better than her. We go, I'm broken. And so that's what they did. They, they, they had this fear. Let me say this. There's two types of brokenness because some of you guys here in this, maybe you grew up in the church and, 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 uh, can't relate to like some just crazy testimony of just sin and anything like that. There's two types of brokenness. There's, there's, there's the broken rebellion to where you say, I'm going to be my own God and do my own thing. And I'm going to reject God's rules. The other type of brokenness, which is equally just as much broken is there's the brokenness that says, I'm going to obey the rules and I'm going to follow all the rules. And then what I'm going to do is put my trust in my faith and how well, um, I follow the rules and how obedient 
obedient I am. Sometimes for that second group of people, it's really hard for them to see their brokenness. And the reality is, is your broken, your inability to see your brokenness shows your own self-righteous brokenness. And so remember that and, and ask God to break you from your self-righteous brokenness. But both are the same responses. Just for the shepherds, they're known as the ragtag guys. Okay. Verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This is it. The angel shows up to a broken group of guys and, and instantly brings fear, but then says, fear not, and then gives this exciting news. And so you can just almost hear the angel's excitement, uh, which would be a reflection of God's excitement. The angel says, fear not, behold, the angel does not show up saying behave. The message of Christianity is behold, not behave. We have to hear that. The angel shows up and says, behold, like behold the good news I'm, I'm about to share with you. The gospel is not due and then get the gospel is done. And then we obey out of what Christ has done. So again, it's, it's behold, not behave. And so the angel's like, behold, I bring you good news. The gospel is also good news, not good advice. If you've been around for a while, you've heard us say that. But let me let me uh, quote Martin Lloyd Jones and specifically how he uh, uh, explains the difference between good news and good advice. He says this. He says advice is counsel about something to do, and it hasn't happened yet. But you uh, but but you can do it. News is a report about something that has happened. You can't do anything about it. It's been done for you, and all you can do is respond. He goes on to say, and, and Martin Lloyd-Jones was not one that liked analogies, but, but he goes on to use this one. He says, imagine that a king goes into battle to defend his kingdom against an invading army. If he wins the battle, he'll send messengers back to his people with the good news of his victory. These messengers would announce, the enemy's been defeated. The battle is won. Go and enjoy the peace the king has obtained for you. But what if the invading army breaks through the king's defenses? Then the king wouldn't send back messengers with good news. Instead, he'd send a message of advice saying, arm yourselves, reinforce the ramparts, get ready to fight for your lives. The angel shows up saying, behold, what are you supposed to behold? Good news. I, I don't bring you good advice on, on 10 tips in life or 12 steps to a better life. I bring you good news. The gospel is good news. It is something that we herald. It is something we share. It is something we tell. It is something that we look at. What is the good news? First, the good news is only good news if we go back and remember there's bad news. The bad news is, is that we're sinners that are broken and we can't save and redeem and rescue ourselves. Christmas every year is a reminder that we've been outed by God. In other words, he's, God sends God in the Son to save and redeem us because we are helpless and hopeless to save ourselves. That's why Christ showed up. And so the good news is that Jesus didn't jump in as an adult. Jesus jumped in as an infant, completely subjected himself to trusting God in such a vulnerable state. And he jumped in from an infant. Why? Because he needed to live a fully obedient life to God from, from an infant to a toddler, to a child, into his teenage years, into a full grown man. We don't have just the adult life of Jesus that we trust in. From, from beginning to the end of his life on the cross, Jesus was living a life of, of obedience to God in every way. Oftentimes, people will tell me, and maybe you guys have heard me say this to people, is they'll, they'll share with me like, hey, I'm struggling because I did this yesterday, this last week, or this sin. I feel really convicted. That's a good thing. 
Conviction is a good thing. I feel convicted about what I did last night. And if they're standing there, what, what else tell them oftentimes? And I'm like, you're not looking far enough back. And they'll be like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you're looking back to last week. What you need to do is look further back. You need to look 2000 years ago because ultimately it's not all about you and it's not about your life and what you have done. It's about his life and it's about the birth of an infant who, who stepped into creation to live a life of full obedience to God. You're not looking far enough back for your righteousness before God. It, it's not about you. It, it's actually about him and it's about his obedience. And so Christ did that and then he went to the cross and what he did is on the cross, there was a, a completely unjust execution. Christ was executed in an unjust manner in every way. He was the only just man to live on this earth, perfectly innocent. But God being just and being holy and being righteous, and we want a just God, poured out the fullness of his justice and wrath and punishment on sin, which is something that we should have been on the cross paying for ourselves. But instead it was placed on Jesus the sin was the punishment for it. And so he became the substitute. He became the sacrifice that we need. That is the good news. The other good news is that he walked out of the tomb three days later, showing that it actually is finished. All that's needed to be done for us to be made right with God, he finished. God's greatest act of grace, God's greatest display of grace is not some object out there. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. That's the good news. It is all about Christ and what he's done. So we do need to look back. And, and, and when, we're, when we're looking at something, we don't look at our lives going, ah, oh, there's no way God's going to accept me based upon something I've done. What we have to do is look back. We have to look back to the good news of 2,000 years ago. And here's the reality. You can do two things with news. You can receive it, believe it, and accept it, or you can reject it. But here's the thing. You can't change something that happened on the news two weeks ago, and you can't change what Christ did for us 2,000 years ago. But you can behold it. You can believe in it. You can place the fullness of your trust and faith in it, and then let it transform every part of your life. That's what we do with news. What we also need to see something here, won't dive into the fullness of this, but what we do see is that the angel says, fear not for behold, I bring you good news, uh, great joy that will be for all, not people, but for the people. This good news is for God's elect. This good news is for the, uh, is for those that God has chosen to reveal himself to. And so that, that, that definite article is in there for a reason. It's in there for a purpose. Let's move on to verse 11. It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. What's Luke doing? He's like, hey, remember how I started this with Caesar Augustus, with these other leaders, and with these self-proclaimed titles they've given themselves? An angel shows up and he's like, this is this one's name because this is who he truly is. This is Christ, which means anointed one. This is Jesus, which means Savior, and this is God. Luke uses the title here as, as we see the Lord. Before this, if you read Luke's gospel, he'll say the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. This is him saying, look, this is who Jesus is. Fully God and fully man. The promised Messiah from Genesis 3, the anointed one, this is him. He's the Savior. There is no Savior. There is no Messiah other than Jesus Christ. And that's what he's trying to show is that God can accomplish more from a manger than Caesar Augustus can from his throne. We have two very different kings. We have a king like Caesar Augustus who's going to use his power to exploit people and he's going to so-called bring peace through, the, through, through, through bloodshed of people. We have a very different king who's born in a manger, who's born in a lowly place, 
who, who, who's not wrapped in, in, in purple robes. Instead, he's wrapped in, in, in cloths and he's laid in a manger. And instead of exploiting people through his power, he's going to instead use his power to absorb the wrath of punishment that we should take. And instead of shedding other people's blood, he's going to bring, bring peace through his own blood, as it says in Colossians. We, 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 we also have to see as, as we jump into verse 12, it says this, and this will be a sign for you. This is where we get to our main point is that, um, is that God, this gift of, of a baby, this is our baby. And so as we look here, look at verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. Remember, this is, this is for the shepherds. This, this is signing a present, like two shepherds from God. So this is a sign for you. That when you, uh, you will go and you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. That's not uncommon. That, that's very common. But he's going to be, look, lying in a manger. That's uncommon. That is uncommon. You would not expect a king, the, the creator of the universe, to step in and be placed in a manger. No. You would expect, like I said, for there to be trumpets, for there to be a parade, for there to be something crazy. But, but he was wrapped and placed in a manger. Notice the language here. Again, we got to go back and see verse 11 and 12. For unto you, the shepherds, is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Why is that different? Because babies are typically a gift to the parents. So we have to see what Luke is doing here. It's saying this baby is a gift for you, the shepherds. This baby is a gift to us, to God's elect, God's chosen, those who have placed their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. The, the, the gift of Christmas is a baby. That's our baby. I know it sounds weird to say, but that's our baby. And in a sense, that's God giving God the son to us to rescue us from the work of his hands and bring us back into relationship with him. So God gives us the gift of a baby, his son. And what Jesus is going to do is, is he's giving God a, a, a gift. What he's doing is giving God the gift of us in a state of righteousness, being placed in right relationship back to God. And so we have to see that, that this baby is our baby. It, it, it's, it's, it's a baby being born by Mary, but we see that in this unique situation, this is not their gift. It's actually our gift that God is given. And again, this grace, this person has a face, his name is Jesus Christ. We also need to see this, that from the outset of Jesus's life, he was placed in a hard manger. And, and, and this is symbolic for something because the way that his life starts, his life will end. So he was born in a lonely, or in, in, in a lowly place, in a hard manger. Like that's low, really low. You're in a stinky manger, surrounded by stinky shepherds. It's just in a stinky environment because he came for the people that stink, that recognize we're broken sinners. And at the end of his life, what he would do is, is something even more lowly. He would go to a, to, to, to a harder place that was more uncomfortable. Than a manger, he would go to the cross. And that's what we start to see. And he, he was wrapped in, in cloths. And ultimately what would happen is at the end of Jesus's life, he would be stripped of clothes so that we could bear the clothes that he actually deserves to wear. Jesus deserved to wear royal clothes as a king should, but instead he was stripped so that he could place those robes of righteousness on us. And then so we could become sons and daughters of God. This all came because God gave a gift of our baby, his own son, who would do all the work needed to be done to reconcile us and give us as a gift back to God. No king attire, no crazy clothing, just a hard and comfortable service is our king, and that's how he's born. 
but God stepped in knowing exactly what we needed. We don't need a government system change. We don't need things turned over. We don't need this. We don't need that. What we ultimately need is good news. We need the good news of all that Christ has accomplished. And what we need is to be reconciled to God. And so here's the reality is that we can make Christmas all about Santa Claus and else and everything else. But, but the reality is, is the Christmas is all about Jesus. And it's even if you reject Jesus right now, you have to admit this, that he divided time, that every year there, there, there's a worldwide celebration of a holiday called Christmas, Christ. And it's all about him. And here's what I would say. There is a pull. We don't have a pull towards Santa Claus. We don't have a pull towards the elves. What we have a pull towards is glory. We're created in the image of a glorious, majestic God. And so all of us is pulled toward Christ. We are pulled toward beauty. We are pulled toward our creator. We are pulled toward majesty. And here's the reality. What if you, if you're not a Christian listening now, you can suppress that. But the reality is, is that every Christmas there's this worldwide celebration because inherently deep inside of us, even though we suppress this truth, we know that we are created to be in relationship with our King of glory. And there's a pull in us. We can suppress this truth, but here's the other logical reality is I've been on many airplanes and some that have a lot of turbulence. When, when, whenever the turbulence breaks out, I've never heard anyone go, uh, uh, go, oh, Buddha or oh, universe or cry out like that. In the deepest, darkest moments of our life, people oftentimes cry out to God. Why? Because we're created in his image and we have an internal pull towards his glory and his beauty. And, and as, as J.C. Ryle even says, if I can find my. My, my notes here, he says this, now is come the highest degree of glory to God by the appearing of his son, Jesus Christ in the world. He, by his life and death on the cross, will glorify God's attributes of justice and holiness and mercy and wisdom as they were never glorified before. The angels we see right after this in verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Okay, this is it. The song Gloria in Excelsis Deo means glory to God in the highest. What happens is there's this, there's this delight. The angels are celebrating. They long, as Peter says, to look into the gospel. The, 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 there's this worship experience because God has displayed his greatest act and, and the pinnacle of his glory by sending his son as an infant to step in the world to do what? To bring peace, it says in 14. And here's the reality. I'm going to be blunt. Is there, and this, these aren't my words, but there isn't peace until you find your peace in the king of peace. And so when Jesus promises peace, as, as, as he promises, as Becca said in lighting the Advent candle, he's not promising to get away with anything in life that makes us uncomfortable. He's not promising there will not be pain or hardship. He's promising that in the midst of pain, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of crisis and all that's going on in life, that you will have peace because peace is through his presence, not through an absence of something else. This promise is made in John 16, And what we ultimately need in this life, you don't need a restored marriage. You don't need um, a, 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 this career or job or anything else. What your soul needs for peace is to know that you are loved by God and to have a restored relationship with him. Christ alone does that by grace 
through faith. And then it says with whom he is well pleased. Who is God well pleased with? God is ultimately well pleased with his son, as it says from the moment of baptism. But those who have placed their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, those are whom God is well pleased. You're not a disappointment to God. God's not grossed out by you. When you have trusted in Jesus, he sees you as he sees his son and you are at peace and will forever be at peace with God. And here's the reality. If you ever want to say, God, how do we know you love us? God, how do you, how do we grasp that is we don't have to look any other place besides the life, the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because God and Jesus are showing, this is the amount of risk I'm willing to take. This is the amount of rejection, the abuse that I'm willing to do because I love you so much that I want to bring you back into the presence of my God where you can be eternally and infinitely loved. Let me end with this. Is that uh, recently I, uh, our youngest was having a night tear and she's been having more night tears. And I'm not able to lift more than 10 pounds from my back surgery. And she was crying out. And so I went in her room and her words out of her mouth were, I'm scared. And she, I could just see the fright and the terror in her face. And so in that moment, I, I, I had to make a decision. I know that I can't lift more than 10 pounds, though my daughter weighs about 30 pounds. But there wasn't like a second thought in my mind to not grab my daughter, pick her up and hold her and embrace her. I knew the risk. I knew the pain that could come. And I knew that it could actually just mess up the surgery that I just had. But 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 I was willing to, to sacrifice all that to just hold my daughter. And here's the greater reality. Jesus knew the risk. He knew the pain. He knew the suffering and he knew it all. And, and he didn't think twice about it. He, he, he didn't despise it. He didn't push it away. But to a greater degree, he went through that, knowing all that he would endure. Why? So we could be loved as he is loved and be restored and reconciled to God. That gift and the most uncommon gift of Christmas is Jesus Christ in a baby that we celebrate because he provides and does for us what we ultimately need. In 15 through 20, basically what happens is the shepherds go to Bethlehem. They see just as the angel had told them and they worship. We have a response. Our response as Christians is to live a life of worship. And it's a response to the gospel. We don't behave first, we behold. And then our behavior reflects what Christ has done. We live consistent, consistently with that. My hope and prayers, if you're listening this morning and you sense there's no peace in, in, in my life, there's just things are in a state of turmoil. Let me challenge you with this. Could it be that God's word is true and you're not going to find that until you're reconciled or restored into right relationship with God? And so what we do and what we respond is we behold, we treasure, we ponder as Mary does here, and then we worship. As the song says, we go tell on the mountains. We tell everyone, this is who Christ is. This is the good news. This is what he's done. And we stake our whole life into this good news. We place the full weight of our trust and confidence in him. Maybe God's working in a low season in your life, in a very painful season right now. We can trust it through the lowest seasons that God saves us, that God redeems us, and that God is using those things purpose, uh, purposely. And so we see that he works in uncommon ways and that through those things, he's actually doing uh, j j just a great good. I love you guys. I miss you guys. Look forward to when we can worship and gather again. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of our baby. We celebrate Jesus. Amen.